Hello, and welcome to Strangers in a Tangled Wilderness. I'm your host, Inman Narrowin, and I use they, them pronouns. Strangers in a Tangled Wilderness is a collectively run publisher dedicated to producing and curating inclusive and intersectional culture informed by anarchistic ideals. We publish fiction, poetry, memoir, nonfiction, theater pieces, comics, books, pop culture analysis, recipe books, music, history, and other podcasts. We are looking for content that doesn't know where it fits in, for people that don't know where they fit in. On this podcast, we have audio versions of our monthly featured zine, read by a brilliant voice actor, along with interviews with the author. We also make these really cool little quarter-sized zines of the monthly feature, which you can get mailed to you anywhere in the world if you sign up for our Zine of the Month Club on our Patreon. Our Patreon helps make things like this podcast possible, as well as supporting other podcasts we put out. Are you into prepping or just trying to figure out how to survive a collapsing society? Check out Live Like the World is Dying, your podcast for what feels like the end times, hosted by our own Margaret Kiljoy. Are you yourself a writer of zines? We're always taking submissions for our monthly feature and this podcast, so if you would like to submit a piece that you think would find a nice home with us, visit tangledwilderness.org for our submission guidelines. This month, we have a reprint of Margaret's old podcast, We Will Remember Freedom. The story is Pelicananimus and the Battle for Mosquito Ridge by Izzy Wazerstein. It's about anarchists during the Spanish Civil War and how things could have been different with dinosaurs. And it's just truly wonderful. I'm really into this theme we have going of insert strange creature or magic into historical anarchist struggle. Also, the story is narrated by B. Flowers, a dear, dear friend and one of my favorite people to have read to me. Izzy is a radical queer writer from Kansas and teaches writing, literature, and poetry. Stick around after the story for an interview with Izzy and Margaret. Pelicanimimus and the Battle for Mosquito Ridge by Izzy Wazerstein Narrated by B. Flowers Dedicated to the memory of Oliver Law 1900 to 1937, the first black American to command white troops and leader of the Abraham Lincoln Brigade, Spanish, Brigada Abraham Lincoln. Known for his bravery in action while leading his troops at the Battle of Mosquito Ridge. Is there a connection between the reemergence of dinosaurs and the many worlds theory? So my colleagues theorize. I can only say this. History is contingent and much of it is outside of our control. All any of us can do is act responsibly. Which brings me to the Battle of Mosquito Ridge. July 5th, 1937. My dear Eli, I hope you will excuse my recent silence. We have been engaged in making a barricade against the fascists, for they seek to take Madrid. We will not let them. I have been slow to write due to a wound, and because I fear that you may not have forgiven me for my foolish parting words, perhaps I can find a way to say in writing what I could not say in your embrace. I have been serving under Commander Oliver Law in the Machine Gun Regiment. In late winter, I took a bullet in the palm. By the grace of God, it did not grow infected, but my left hand is near useless to me now. I will need to send you home, Law told me, A man who cannot steady a rifle is of no use to me. Sir, I will go to hell before I will abandon this fight, I told him. Law is as brave a man as I know, the first black among us to be made commander, and a communist. He no more believes in hell than I do, but he only smiled and said, Well then, we will find a way to make you useful. Pride ran through me like a river, for I have many times seen Law lead the charge into the teeth of the enemy— and there is no officer I more admire. We plan an advance against the fascists to ease their siege on Madrid and cut them off from their supply lines. I am still nimble and quiet and sharp-eyed, so now I scout ahead. 
I can imagine your words in my head, chiding me for not coming home when I could. Even now, I hear you say, we could be mobilizing workers each morning and in each other's arms each night. There are tens of thousands of volunteers, you told me, on our last day together. But I have only you. When I think of the look in your eyes, I feel as though I've been sliced open. But I believe in this cause then, and now I have seen proof with my own eyes. We must stop the fascists here, or they will spread across Europe. There are German bombers overhead and Italian arms on the other side of the lines. I long for your arms, my Eli, but I fight to make the world safe for us, and I have seen soldiers of all genders fight on despite worse injuries. I believe we will triumph, and I will return to you. Should we fail, I take comfort in this, that the struggle is worth all. I do not know when this letter will reach you. I cannot send it now, for fear of revealing too much to the enemy, and knowing that I have expressed my love for you in a way many of my comrades would loathe. I will keep this letter to myself, and if God wills, find a way to get it to you soon. Yours always, Mordecai. July 6th, 1937. My dearest Eli, we have made good progress. Our initial attack caught the fascists off guard, and they have little answer for the Soviet tanks. While the governments of the world look away, it remains to us volunteers, the Spanish Republicans, and our Soviet allies to push back the rising tide of fascism. We have captured the town of Brunette, and I scout beyond the edges of our lines. Our brigade is in position beneath the outcropping they call Mosquito Ridge. It rises well above the dusty hills and plains. We are positioned to its north, and to the south of it, Franco's forces await us. I went scouting, hoping to assess what defenses await us should we seek to claim the high ground of the ridge. That was how I found something remarkable. The weather has turned hot, and there is not so much as a cloud to cool us. This is a dry land, with little water. I use the arroyos here to move unseen, and sometimes I find trickles of muddy water to quench my thirst. I was filling my canteen in one of these, the fighting well away from me and the area fairly quiet, when there was a rustle to my left. I thought myself a dead man. The noises were not approaching troops, however, but some creature moving in the brush. A head poked out at me, something like a chicken's, but larger and much longer. Two wide eyes stared at me from perhaps four feet off the ground, in a face of tan feathers with a gray circle right between its eyes. Through the thick tangle of scrub, I could spy its body. It made a sound like a raven's quark and ducked its head back in the shrubs. I had never seen anything like it. When I inched forward for a better look, it cawed at me with such ferocity that I swiftly backed off. When it didn't reappear to further antagonize me, I pulled a handful of bread from my pack and ate my small midday meal. I had some hope that clouds might appear before I would have to leave the shade of the arroyo wall. No sooner had I begun to eat than the bird thing poked its head back out and watched, corking as it did so. I ate another bite, then tossed a small piece toward it. The creature was clearly hungry, and I had a little I could spare. It lunged forward and ate quickly, then darted back. It was much longer than I had guessed, several yards long at least, and its forelimbs were long and feathered. Perhaps I should have been afraid. But for all its impressive size, I could see in its gaze that it did not mean me harm. With another bit of bread held out to it, the creature edged toward me, wary. Its eyes were dark and clever like a raven's, but when it cautiously took the bread from my hand, I saw hundreds of small, sharp teeth. This time, it did not eat the bread, but carried it between its jaws back into the bushes. The brush must go deeper there than I realized, for from inside I heard much squawking and corking. I took one more bite of bread and then tossed the rest into the brush. The eager noises I heard were my reward, and reason enough to go hungry for a few hours. I did not tell anyone at camp about the creatures. Perhaps I keep them secret out of selfishness, a bad trait in an anarchist, or perhaps I simply worry that my hungry comrades would see them as food. For now, I keep the secret safe between us. I lie awake this night, thinking of them and you. Do you remember when we first met? 
It could not have made as much of an impression on you as it did on me. You were speaking passionately, supporting the hotel strike, your voice booming over the crowd. I stood enraptured, unable to look away. I was smitten at once and hopeless, for I could not then imagine that you, handsome, tall, and possessed of such authority, could love me, read then, small voice, and a man besides. Then you met my eyes, and it was as though a vice, cruel and welcome, tightened in my chest. July 8th, 1937 Dearest Eli, the heat refuses to relent. It rises from the land in shimmering waves, with not a cloud to break it. It parches this dry land drier. Everyone thirsts. My only comfort is that the enemy must be thirsty as well, and more miserable for it, for our cause is just. Each day I have scouted and refilled my canteen from the trickle of the Arroyo stream. The creatures grow increasingly comfortable with me. They know I will bring them some food, bread, or a few bites of meat. They'll eat most anything, but meat seems to delight them best. There are six of them, a pack, or should I say a flock. They do not fly, having no wings, but they are much like birds. They like me quite well, these strange creatures. Now when I arrive, the brave one I first met, who I have taken to calling Gray Spot, pokes his head out and greets me with a chirk, 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 that I think means he is pleased. Soon the others join in. They are ragged and thin. The fighting in the area has grown intense, the heat oppressive, and they hide. They are hungry. Anyone can see there is not enough in this arid land to long sustain beasts of such size. I cannot help but worry for them. I think of the stray cats you take in and care for as the days turn cold, so I know that you will not laugh at me, nor at my fear for these strange creatures. I could die at any moment, but these innocents are caught in our war, and each time I am with them, I feel the weight of their presence, as though they were drawn to me for a purpose, and I to them. Does it betray my anarchism to think such, my beloved? Perhaps it does, but I feel it even so. The world is not as it must be, and certainly it is not as it should be. It is as we make it. Perhaps fate or chance or God helps us if we know how to look. If so, then it may be that they, like you, are here to remind me to be kind as well as righteous. Or perhaps God does not intervene, and it is all only men. If so, men will soon decide much. Little has happened of late, as both sides position and seek out weaknesses in the other. The weather has slowed everything down, but even if the heat does not break, the tension will. The forces are in place, and supplies run low. Battle will be joined soon, and decisively. This worries me. Fascist patrols have kept me from getting close enough to the ridge to discover their defenses, but I have now scouted the rest of the area thoroughly. They've extended their line to the east, keeping to the hills beneath the ridge. We have moved our line opposite them, with the plains between us. My friends, the bird creatures, are in an arroyo just on our side of the hills, less than a mile from the fascist line. One thing is certain. Whoever holds Mosquito Ridge will claim a dominant position on this portion of the battlefield. I am certain we will soon try to claim it. What will happen to my new friends once the fighting begins? I wish there was more that I could do for them. Perhaps it is my fate to do what little I can. It is not the first stone that builds a bridge. Nonetheless, each stone is necessary. May I be a worthy stone. July 10th, 1937. My dearest Eli, Commander Law called me to his tent this afternoon. He hunched over a map of the battlefield the thick canvas blocking out much of the afternoon light. He beckoned me inside and extended his finger to a point on the map. Mosquito Ridge. Our orders have come down, he said. We attack the ridge tomorrow. Yes, sir, I said. I do not like the word sir, but law is a cunning tactician and always leads from the front and has earned it. The fascists patrol the area constantly, I told him. I have not been able to get close enough to judge their defenses. Law nodded, put a hand on my shoulder. I know you've done your best. But now I need more than that. I need to know what we're facing. Can you get closer? 
I felt my jaw tighten. I can, sir, if I leave after dark. We both knew the risk, but I saw this was my chance to repay my commander's trust in me, perhaps my one chance to help our cause. I'm counting on you, Goldman, he said, and we shared the look of men who might not survive the next day. I am sorry to write it so plainly, my beloved. I know it will cause you pain to see it put down like that. Even if you cannot forgive me for my words, I must be honest. You were put on this earth to make the world better, block by block, through small kindnesses and organizing the masses. Perhaps I was put here for this moment. Do you remember what you asked me the night before I left, as we held one another and let the cool night wash over us? Tell me, you said, why must you do this? To stop the fascists, I told you. I was hurting and preferred your anger to your tears, so I added, you will have no trouble replacing me. It was a cruelty, and defamation besides, for I trust you completely. To admit it would have made leaving harder, so like a coward I chose the easy path over truth. Never again. If I die tonight, I pray you will forgive me for leaving you, and for the hurt I caused you. No matter my foolish words, know that there is nothing but death that would keep me from your side. Now, at last, I know the other half of my answer. If I could go back and rest with my head on your chest, here is what I would say. I fight to be a man worthy of your love. July 19th, 1937 My dearest Eli, I have lived to fight on, but in the strangest of circumstances. That night, I made my approach to the ridge, moving through scrub grass and keeping as low and silent as I could. It was long, tense work, full of switchbacks and steep ascents as I moved higher up the ridge. My wounded hand made the climb slower than it should have been. Twice, enemy patrols nearly stumbled on me, but fortune was with me, and many hours after I had set out, I learned what I needed to know. There were machine gun nests halfway up the ridge, entrenched and surely fatal for the attack we had been ordered to make. My only thought then was to get back to Commander Law, to warn him. I hurried down from the hills as quickly as I dared. When I last again had a view of the plains between the ridge and our brigade, I saw a terrible sight. In the pre-dawn light, Franco's forces had rearranged themselves. They had not moved far, merely from one side of a low range of hills to the other, a distance of just over a mile. But in so doing, they had cut off my route back to camp. There was no going through them. I could have gone around, far to the east, but it would have been a detour of several hours, too late to warn Law. I made my way as far as I could, through the scrub grass and the very arroyo I had spent much time in these last few days, and I despaired. I sat with my head in my hands, trying to think, feeling I had failed my commander and my cause, when from behind me I heard a familiar quirk-quirk. The bird creatures moved in an uneasy pack down the stream, led by Gray Spot. They advanced to perhaps twenty feet away, then hesitated. Gray Spot, always bold, drew nearer, still quirking, tilting his head to one side. My friends were looking very hungry now, the lines of their ribs visible to me even in the half-light. In my anxiety the day before, I had not touched any of my evening's rations, so now I tore off a bit of bread and tossed it to him. He did not eat, but brought it back to the others, and they devoured it. It would do them little good, I feared. They could not long survive here, not while the battle continued, and on every side for miles there were military lines. I've heard it said that great desperation breeds great insight. Perhaps it is so. I think it is more likely that I seized on the only half-chance that presented itself. It was better than being caught. Better by far than doing nothing. I walked back the way I had come, crouching and dropping crumbs behind me, every few feet at first, then with more and more distance between. My friends moved cautiously afterward, always twenty or thirty feet back. They were clever, and at least as desperate as I was. They were less quiet than I, 
but we were now behind the enemy line, and no one noticed us. Halfway up the ridge, I ran out of bread and switched to sausage. Not much longer after that, I could hear the fascists nearby, readying for battle. I feared we would be caught so close to our goal, but the brush and the steep terrain helped us, as did our approach. They were expecting an attack from the only direction available to the Republican forces, across the plain and up the ridge. I had approached from what they thought was a secure flank. When I was very close to the nearest machine gun embankment, I went down on my belly. The skittish creatures stopped, save for Spot, who followed closely behind me. I reached up to him, and he did not flinch away as I rubbed at the soft feathers of his neck. It was my goodbye. The gunner was already at his post, hunched over his weapon and looking drowsy as the light broke over the desert. Across the plain, I saw my comrades advancing. They were a large force, big enough to not be threatened by the fascists in the hills to the west. But they had no chance of scaling the steep incline of the ridge under sustained machine gun fire. In no more than twenty minutes, they would be in range. Gunfire would give away my position, and my wounded hand made my rifle all but useless, so I slid my knife between my teeth and edged forward. Gray Spot didn't move, but knelt low, watching me with those strange, keen eyes. I had perhaps fifty yards between me and my target, half of that in the open, with no cover. All I could do was move silently and hope. By the time I was out of cover of the scrub, the morning was fully bright. If he turned around, I would be caught out in the open, the alarm raised, and all lost. I inched forward, quiet as I could. I wished to break into a run and have it all decided at once, but I held my nerve. Ten yards. Five. At last I was so close I could smell his sweat. I pulled myself to a crouch. He yawned and turned I drew my knife across his throat. His eyes went wide, and he clutched at himself as he died, his blood seeping across the rocky ridge. In truth, I did not feel any pity for this boy I had killed, this fascist, though he was younger than I am. I felt only the weight of chance and obligation that had let me take his life before he could take mine. I had no plan for what came next, no way to drive my friends forward, but Spot needed no convincing. He came up to the body at once, lowered his head, and made a noise like a pig in the undergrowth. He drank at the blood, then began to feed. It did not take the others long to join him. I could not easily stomach the sight of the creature's meal, though I did not begrudge them. I moved clear of their way, further up the trail. My instincts were fortunate for their noise brought a pair of curious soldiers down from the nearest machine-gun nest, one an officer. They came around a bend and stopped, blinking at what they were seeing. I feared gunfire would send my friends running, so I leaped from the bushes, knife in good hand, and flung myself at them. My blade caught the officer in the shoulder, and we tumbled to the ground. We rolled over one another, me trying to get another strike with my blade, him reaching for his own. I was dimly aware of shouting, of the other man reaching for a weapon. I do not know whether I believe in miracles, but I do not know what else to call what happened next. There were shouts from beyond me, the echo of a machine gun, and then, caw, 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 from behind me. The officer plunged his knife into my side, then screamed as Spot's teeth tore at his neck. His companion gave a kind of choking cry, only to disappear beneath the other bird things. It was horrible to see. The two men did not survive long. Perhaps fifteen seconds had passed. There were shouts from along the ridge and from below. No longer afraid of the noise, I pulled free my pistol and saw, below me, Law leading the charge up the ridge, into the line of fire. I rushed forward, around the curve in the ridge and toward the next machine-gun nest, firing as soon as the enemy was visible to me. I was dimly aware that my friends followed. Had I given them a taste for blood, or were they responding when a friend was threatened, as any good freedom fighter would do? All I know is that together we rushed into the next nest 
and the next, and the next. All along the lines were shocked and panicked fascists. One crew managed to point their machine gun at us, but Graysbot leaped high and came down upon them, all claws and teeth. Fascists fled, pale and screaming, down the ridge towards my comrades. At some point, I collapsed to the ground, bleeding from my side wound. I had also reopened the wound on my hand in the desperate fighting, and blood coated my bandages. As my vision faded, I saw the bird creatures leaning over me, and I wondered if they would consume me, too. When I woke, Commander Law was looking down at me. I had been dead to the world for several hours. Long enough, it seemed, for us to secure the ridge and for Law, having seen some of what had happened, to somehow convince my friends to let him and a medic near me. Those things, he said, whatever they are, are quite protective of you, son. I smiled. Maybe they just hate fascists as much as we do, sir. Law smiled, too. The battle continues, my beloved, though I am now in Madrid recovering. I will rejoin my comrades as soon as the doctors will allow it. I do not take well to sitting idle, but it has at least allowed me time to finish this letter, and there is a nurse here who understands the circumspection our love demands. She will see this reaches you. There is much to be done before the war is won, but the news from the front is good, and the day is coming when I will beat my swords to plowshares, or at any rate, trade my gun for a pen. Yours always, Mordecai. Postscript. I have here a letter from Commander Law. It seems my friends will not give him a moment's peace. He says one of the Spanish officers, a geologist, has solved the riddle of them. You must return soon, Law tells me. These dinosaurs of yours must also be anarchists, for they are barely controlled and eager for the blood of fascists. So, uh, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm delighted to be a part of this. Uh, for our listeners, could you introduce yourself, um, your name, your pronouns, and, uh, well, I guess everyone here has just already heard your fiction, so they have an idea of what it is you write. But Absolutely. I'm Izzy Wasserstein. My pronouns are she and her. Um, I am a queer trans writer of speculative fictions. And these days I think I mostly write about queer communities and uh, beating up fascists. Cool. Um, so everyone who's listening has just heard your story of uh, the battle for, I can't pronounce this dinosaur's name, Pelic- or, or Pelicamamus and the battle for Mosquito Ridge. Um, and I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit the story of that story um, how it came to you, the process of writing it, um, yeah, things like that. I'd be delighted to. Um, the So it started with my obsession with what the people that in America were called uh, the premature anti-fascists, mm-hmm. which were those Americans who, along with many people from around the world, went to Spain uh, to fight against the fascists, take over there. Uh, and then came back to outright hostility because uh, they were they had been anti-fascist before that was socially acceptable and were mostly correctly uh, seen as being communists or anarchists or other undesirables. And so I had been doing some research on them for a while, reading some of their letters uh, and thinking about how I was into my 30s before – I had ever heard about the scope of international involvement in the Spanish Civil War. Mm-hmm. And I had been thinking for a while about what I wanted to do with that. And I had a couple different ideas for how I might want to approach that. But then I came across a way to sort of do it as a story about how provisional history is. And how where things aren't set in stone just because 
what that's the way we think they need to unfurl. So that sort of got me there as sort of a starting point. And I knew I wanted it to be a queer story. I think my original plan for the story was to have the protagonist be a woman because that's a little bit more my lane. Mm-hmm. Um, and because there were, were, of course, women fighting in the Spanish Civil War. But with everything else I was juggling in the story, I thought that was maybe one too many complicating elements that I didn't quite want to explore. So I sort of shifted focus a little bit. Yeah, that makes sense. I feel like the protagonist ended up working the way that you wrote them. Um, I'm interested. Okay, so when you talk about... So realizing that you wanted to write this story through fiction, I think sometimes about how... um, I write stories and I'll try and write a normal story and then I'll be like, what's the hook here? And so then I add demons or something like that. <laughs> and I'm wondering if that's a kind of similar thing where you, you had something you wanted to explore and then you were like, Oh wait, maybe it needs dinosaurs. Yeah. I mean, that was definitely part of it. it I think it started out as like poetry. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, it, I didn't love that because I wanted to try to capture more of like the actual like letter format of things. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wanted something – I wanted to tell a story about anti-fascists triumphing without doing anything to suggest like, oh, they really just should have. Mm-hmm. I mean there's a, there's an interesting story one could tell about the way that communists turned on anarchists during the Spanish Civil War um, and the effects that had. But that wasn't quite what I was interested in here. So I thought, well, if there are dinosaurs – <laughs> then what how do i let that change the narrative and how do i let the opportunity that's introduced by that change it without i want to be very careful not to try to accidentally imply that like wow if these heroes had only fought harder against the fascists everything would have been fine mm-hmm. which was my, like the failure mode for the story was it's alternate history because the people i'm most sympathetic to in this moment fucked up, which I don't believe is what happened. Yeah. A lot of people will use that narrative about, yeah, the anarchists or the Marxists or whatever fucking up. And I know I'm much more on the page of, uh, when, uh, your allies turn around and start shooting you in the back while you're in the middle of trying to fight fascists, that really doesn't do anyone any favors. And there's no way of knowing, you know, whether or not we or the left in general would have won if, uh, well, if the Soviet Union hadn't basically declared war on anarchists and actual communists in the process. Absolutely. Yeah. It's one can't know for sure, but it certainly would have uh, improved the odds. Yeah. Um, can you tell us about the story's publication and uh, any feedback that you've gotten? Like how have people been, how have people received the anti-fascist dinosaur story? Uh, yeah, it was appeared uh, in uh, Cross Genre's uh, publication, uh, Resisting Fascism. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I get, I think it would be dishonest of me not to say that I sort of originally wrote it for another, with another call in mind that involved dinosaurs. <laughs> uh, and when I didn't sell it to that call, I was like, well, okay, as much as I love this story, it's never going to find a home because that's such a specific thing, right? Like mm-hmm. in my mind, I was like, how big could the market for anti-fascist dinosaurs be? <laughs> uh, and then I was delighted when the call came out for the resisting fascism. I was like, this is exactly what this story is about. So I immediately sent it out to them mm-hmm. and was really delighted that they were into it and seemed to appreciate what I was trying to do with it. And then it's had a positive response. I think it's also had a decent amount of response that's been along the lines of, I don't quite know what to make about this story that has <laughs> dinosaurs and anarchists and like hyper focuses on one particular battle of the uh, Spanish Civil War. But it feels like it has landed resonantly with uh, queer leftists, which mm-hmm. is the sp- the people who I'm writing for anyway. Uh, and so I've been very pleased to see that like it found its audience and I think they've appreciated what I was trying to do with it. That makes sense. 
Well, you've now sold it at least twice. So yeah, um, absolutely. Yeah. One of the things that has come up with when I think about my own writing, I, I not to just like compare your writing to my own so completely, but I definitely read this story and it was one of the stories I read where I was like, shit, I wish I had thought of this first, you know? Um, but one of the things that's come up for me is that is the realization that like military SF is really rare on the left. And when you're talking about people not knowing it to make of a story that hyper focuses on a specific battle, it's funny because it's like, I grew up reading a fair amount of sci-fi that would be perfectly happy to dedicate, you know, entire books to one battle or skirmish, but that's usually not kind of what's in vogue right now with more leftist and progressive science fiction. So I, I think I, that's one thing I appreciate about this story. Well, thank you. Um, and by the way, I would be delighted to have anyone draw comparisons between my work and yours would make me <laughs> infinitely happy. Um, uh, but yeah, I think that, and I think there's good reason for that. I, mm-hmm. you know, I'm deeply skeptical of narratives that suggest that if we just uh, enact more violence, everything will be okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and I am not a pacifist. Um, I think violence is sometimes necessary. But one of the things that was most interesting to me in this story was trying to find space to make it a story about kindness mm-hmm. uh, and a story where our protagonist uh, gets through what's coming for him in part because he's thinking about how to remain a kind person and a moral person in a situation that is inhospitable to that. Yeah. That makes sense. I, yeah, I was, I was actually, I had a conversation with someone earlier today about how there's sometimes themes that both leftists and right-wing people might touch on like battle, like, um, you know, just conflict and, 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 putting yourself at risk for the greater good and things like that. But there has to be a different way of approaching it for us. You know, we can't just like sing the praises of glory and war, you know, even if sometimes we believe conflict is necessary and yeah, maybe the way that you're, you're talking about it is a good way to do that. I hope so. I think that I still have a lot to think through about how all this needs to work. Mm-hmm. There's there's a there are problems with with any approach I think and I've never I've never found myself totally comfortable with one approach but I also don't want to ever find myself in a position where I have anything but deep admiration for people who believe so strongly that for example Spain was the right place to stop the spread of fascism that they were willing to risk everything to try to make that a reality. Yeah. Yeah. I remember um, standing in front of a, a memorial in London for the, the members of the international brigade that came from England. And I don't remember the numbers off the top of my head, but it was this breathtakingly low percent of people came back, you know, the, yeah. the casualty rates there were, were, like seemed to me almost absurdly high, you know, and uh, it's definitely like a somber moment when I look at that and be like, you know, would have I ha- would I have had the courage to to go do that? Yeah, I I have often wondered that. I'm I have come to the conclusion that for about myself, I would never I won't know about that about myself until and unless that situation occurs which yeah. unfortunately feels increasingly probable <laughs> in the historical moment we're in, but, but right. yeah it's i know right the um i wish i had been a, i wish my pessimism about that had been a little less on the nose i look at <laughs> stuff i was writing a few years ago and uh like stuff from like 2012 2013 mm-hmm. and where i was extremely paranoid about where we were headed and and now I look back and I'm like, why of all of the ridiculous predictions my work has made, was that the one that I appear to have been so correct on? <laughs> yeah. I got it all wrong. I uh, I was totally convinced. I had to scrap my work in progress novel 
because I was totally convinced that the right wing would come back in, but they would come back in on like intersectionality, that they would come back in and be like, America for Americans. We don't care if you're gay or brown, as long as you're legally an American, you know? Um, I thought that's what nationalism would come back in uh, in the United States on, but instead it's just the old-fashioned playing to their strengths, just being fucking Nazis, you know? Yeah. You know, it's funny because, I mean, I don't know. I guess it's, I guess at the, this exact moment it's working out pretty well for them, but that approach would have been a more effective one. Yeah. Um, I can think of some queer people who might have been uh, suckered by that uh, to my alarm. So, yeah. I guess we're lucky they didn't take that approach, although it certainly doesn't feel that way to me at the moment. Yeah. But. Yeah. Hopefully they're not listening to this. Yeah. <laughs> Give them ideas. It's actually something, okay, I don't know if this has come up with your work. It hasn't come up a ton with mine, but something I think about a lot with science fiction is like when we talk about predicting the future, how much do we predict the future versus how much do we accidentally call in the future? You know, if we, science fiction often explores possibilities that then people explore in their real lives, you know? like Yes. Um, but. Yeah. Uh, Go ahead. Um, oh, I'm just I'm just thinking about that. That's I I do I do worry that you can like I I don't want to veer off into like weird the secret <laughs> stuff which isn't for me here. <laughs> um, but there is I, I do think there is predictions can become fatalism really quickly if we're not careful. Yeah. Uh, and I am not by nature an optimistic person. But I also think that fatalism only ever serves entrenched power interests. Okay. You know, so that if we if we assume there's nothing to be done, then who benefits from that assumption? Yeah. And I suspect that most of the time it's people who prefer the status quo. So I've always tried to think, well, I want to be clear-eyed about what the future likely holds. But if I find myself giving up on trying to carve out something good out of that, then mm-hmm. I'm maybe actively working against my communities in some strange way. I don't know if that makes sense. No, that totally makes sense. That's a, there's something that I, I, I kind of end up referring to as strategic optimism, you know, where it's like you have to play to win, even if you don't think you're going to win. Like you have to, you have to look at it as though winning is a possibility. And if it's a possibility, then how do we do it? And then move forward on those paths because you optimism is like necessary in order to, for me, in order to think strategically in order to work towards my goals. And also for me, at least fatalism and especially sort of political nihilism has never really worked for me. I've, I know lots of good anarchist comrades who are nihilist, but it, it doesn't work for me because if I didn't believe that it was possible to win, I don't know how I would respond. You know, it's possible that I would just play video games and read books and like kind of give up, you know? Right. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. I, I find myself in that position as well that I need to imagine possible better futures because I need energy for the fight, right? I need a way to think about it that isn't like, let's sit around and mope about what should have been, which, I mean, I have those impulses too, or else I wouldn't have written this story. (laughs) Uh, But also maybe how do we think through, like, I really like that uh, thinking of it as sort of a, a strategic choice to be optimistic is, I think really wise. Well, okay. So like, is it necessarily like nostalgia to look back on the Spanish civil war? Like, is it, you know, it's certainly, it can be crippling, right? If we all look back at our high water marks and are like, Oh, after that, you know, everything went downhill and we'll never get that back. I think one of the things that, I try to look at something like Spanish Civil War. So one of the things I like about this story, one of the reasons I'm excited to, to run it and for people to listen to it is because 
like I look at anarchist history not as like, oh, we used to be good and now we suck. Um, I mean, there's actually a lot of shit we're a lot better at, both theoretically and practically, than we used to be. But also because we can look back at these like high watermarks and and realize that those were people like us who made that happen. So we could make it happen again, and maybe this time we can also avoid some of the problems and like, you know, we can have another go at it. Maybe we can win. Um, maybe we won't, I don't know. But so that's, that's for me. I, I, I try and find history as inspiration rather than history as like escapism, you know? Absolutely. Um, and I think that is an important thing to know. Like just, I'm certain that everyone who fought, on the left and the Spanish Civil War did not anticipate, did not go in expecting they were going to lose. I'm, I, everything I've read suggests they think they were going to win. Yeah. Right. And, and maybe, maybe should have if, if there had been more people on the left acting in their rational interest, even much less like <laughs> ideology. Right. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, I think it's easy to forget this is maybe going to sound naive, and so I guess I will own that if it does, but that the, the part of what the worst moments in history are are an opportunity to do better than this, right? And so if, um, if we paid an extremely high price as a species for – what we didn't accomplish in the Spanish Civil War, uh, right? We, we we took a very heavy toll. But if we're, we also have to say, okay, well, we we've been through terrible times, and we have to operate in them as though we are going to find a way to make a better future than what we have than the present we have, mm-hmm. right? Uh, and how else are we going to do that besides looking at how we succeeded or how we failed in the past? Yeah. That makes sense. How do you think that... Okay, I'm going to turn this to a slightly different question. So you have science fiction anthologies coming out from science fiction publishers with names like, what was it called? Resisting Fascism? Yeah. Uh, That's not something I would have predicted as necessary, but even as something that would have happened 10 or 15 years ago. Um, when it really felt to me, and maybe it's because I lived in like a radical bubble at the time, it felt to me like radical politics were widely distinct from cultural creation. Like people who ran fiction magazines and stuff weren't didn't really care about politics. We were in kind of this like centrist status quo land. And this is obviously not true. There are obviously people who are writing incredibly radical works this entire time. But I still have a really hard time imagining uh, anthologies like that, and all of the different, you know, publishers that have been really focusing on, well, just like I mean, resisting fascism, both in terms of like calling things fascist and being anti-fascist, but also like resisting fascism as like resisting what fascism wants to do, which is shut up or kill marginalized voices. There's been so much work in science fiction to to uplift marginalized voices. Um, I never would have expected 15 years ago that coming out as trans would, I mean, if, if anything helped my career, you know, I have one of the few jobs in this country where coming out as trans didn't, didn't like really fuck up my income, you know? Um, but I guess I'm, I'm curious what you think about, about the science fiction scene dealing with rising fascism as someone who exists well, you know, in the the short fiction, science fiction world and scene. Yeah. um, It's funny because, you know, I am among my cohort and among people I admire, I am far to the left of even most of the people who I think are, who I most admire within the science fiction scene. Mm -hmm. Uh, So there's, it always does feel, a little more reactionary to me than is probably even <laughs> fair. Mm-hmm. Um, because I, I tend to think that a lot of people who think of themselves as, um, 
leftists are not particularly so by <laughs> by my estimation, including frequently me. There's a bunch of choices <laughs> I've made in my life that are not probably as in line with my values as I would like them to be. Mm-hmm. But there's no question that that you're right that this is one of the few spaces where being marginalized actually means there are some people who are really interested in seeking out your voice and not shutting it down. Mm -hmm. Um, I am very lucky. I'm an academic and thus far I haven't paid any significant career price that I'm aware of for transitioning. Mm -hmm. But that's, that is fortunate and it's, fortunate that I have the privilege of, of operating those spaces. And even so, I'm not sure I'm going to be able to articulate this to my satisfaction, but I still find myself spending a lot of time in my fiction, like worrying about how cishet people are going to respond. Um, yeah. Worrying that being honest about my experience is going to do harm to my communities or going to be willfully misinterpreted or just going to be used as evidence that like, Oh, those angry trans people are at it again, which is a narrative I see over and over again, even though like, I think our field is so much more welcoming of marginalized voices than say much of literary or realist fiction or whatever you want to call it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Which is also, I can accidentally, and I've done this before on this show, kind of like, kind of uh, explored the differences between literary and genre fiction and why I feel so much more comfortable in genre fiction. Um, I don't want to like beat that drum too hard because I know there's also good people who do work in in the literary fiction world, but um, okay. Um, So I think that's actually, that's the the end of the questions that I have written down. and anyone who's listening to your work, who's excited to hear more, can you talk about recent work you've had out, stuff you're, stuff you're working on? Like what's, what's coming up for you? Yeah, absolutely. I just had uh, last week a story come out in a skate pod called A Hinge Helps Your Villain No Matter What. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if you're looking for queer, kinky, fat uh, supervillains mm-hmm. uh, and then that is the story for you. It's a little bit of a departure for me. It's a lot lighter in tone than a lot of my work. <laughs> um, I'm currently working on a number of short fiction pieces that I, my process is always like six things, somewhere between 20 and 80% of the way done, mm-hmm. which is not a great process, but <laughs> it is what I've got going on. Uh, and I'm in the early stages of planning a novel that uh, I've been my sort of elevator pitch for it is dirty dancing, but as a queer space heist, <laughs> I'll read that, which I, I then basically it, it exists in my mind because I, I wish someone had written it. So I was mm-hmm. like, well, shit, I guess I need to write it. Uh, the, uh, what else should I tell you? About? I think that's, I think that's about it. I've got work coming out in uh, Fireside in a few months. Uh, oh, nice! About uh, a young, tr- uh, young trans adolescent trying to do magic to change her, change her body. Mm-hmm. Um, that I think will be of interest to to your listeners. Cool. Um, yeah, there's something that in in there that when you talk about okay, like, well, I'm writing this because I wish someone had written this. Uh, that's something that I think about a lot with the the books I write, the stories I tell is like, some of it's almost like, I'm almost annoyed that I'm like, why do I have to do this? Why wasn't this done like 30 years ago? You know? Um, but, but it's interesting because I, I feel like in some ways that's an expression of the anarchist ethos is that um, we have to, <laughs> like clearly like writing isn't direct action, but if the problem is culture lacking certain cultural ideas, like it is direct action. It is a direct way of solving it to create those cultural ideas and, and put them out. And I just think it's interesting. I, I think it's cool that you do that. Well, thank you. Yeah. I, I sometimes think to myself that I'm not sure that I hold any belief as deeply 
as I hold the belief that we can, in fact, be the bands that we want to hear. Yeah. Um, and I think you, you're right. It's a, it's a big mistake to uh, confuse writing with direct action. But it's also like if we want if we want to see something in the culture, nobody but us is going to produce it, right? Yeah, totally. All right. Well, that's a. I think that's a, a good note to end on. Um, where can where can listeners find out more about your work? Uh, I'm on Twitter at i z z y x e n or at uh, on my website is izzywasserstein dot com. Okay. Thanks so much. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a, a delight. Thanks. That was Pelican Animus and the Battle for Mosquito Ridge by Izzy Wasserstein. Izzy can be found at izzywasserstein.com. I think she had a collection of short stories come out this year, too. All the hometowns you can't stay away from. It can be found at neonhemlock.com. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please go tell someone about it. Whisper its name in their ear. Put it on while relaxing outside with your comrades as you prepare to befriend strange creatures. Another way to support this podcast, as well as the authors, translators, editors, and artists that we work with, is to consider subscribing to our Patreon. Subscribers receive at different levels access to digital copies of our archived zines, digital copies of new work, Patreon-only content, discounts of printed work, and monthly printed copies of our featured zine mailed to you along with whatever else we feel like that month. You can find us at patreon.com slash strangers in a tangled wilderness, or check out our website for more free content. We can be found at tangledwilderness.org, or check us out on Twitter at tangledwild, and on Instagram at tangled underscore wilderness. And as always, if you don't want to or can't contribute financially, Please rate and review us, and most importantly, tell a friend. We like having friends. You do incredible things that we are endlessly marveled by. We would especially like to thank these friends. Mickey, Nicole, David, Dana, Chelsea, Micaiah, Starro, Jennifer, Eleanor, Natalie, Kirk, Hugh, Nora, Sam, Chris, Oxalis, Paige, SJ, Cat J, Sean, and Haas the dog for making this podcast and so many other projects possible. If you feel like a stranger that would like to find their story a home in this tangled wilderness, consider submitting it. Something in the bushes might find it tasty. Also, we have some fun stuff coming out soon. We're really excited to announce our first book is coming out on November 1st and will be available for pre-order fairly soon. Try Anarchism for Life by Cindy Brock Milstein, an exploration of social relationships that portend the world to come. Next month, we have a special treat. We have some more Penumbra City content from Margaret Killjoy. She has a zine of lore about the TTRPG we're creating here at Strangers, and me and her will talk about the development of the game as well as the story behind the world. Stay well. We hope you come back.